Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that brings them into a dimly lit interrogation room, plies them with tea and cheap biscuits, and through a cunning blend of astute questioning and brute force, gets to the truth. Looking back through our archives, which you should definitely do, we've been privileged to talk to some of the biggest names in both genres, but just when you think we couldn't get any bigger or better, we've only managed to get one of the most prolific, best-selling and annoyingly talented writers out there. In a 30-year career, Harlan Coben has written over 30 books, selling 70 million copies all over the world, and now he's started to write TV shows for channels like Walter Presents and Netflix to boot. See, I told you he was annoying. We'll be talking to him about his illustrious career, his move to TV, and quite probably all manner of other stuff, just because we can. Welcome to A Stab in the Dark. So, Harlan, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thank you very much for doing this. How's it going, Mark? It's going very well, mate. It's going very well. And with you? Good, good, good. It's great to, it's great to talk to you. It's always fun to talk to you. Well, We've known each other a fairly long time now, haven't we? We have. We have. 20 years, I should imagine, something like that. Um, I, think, I, we, I remember going out with you and John Wood right before your first book came out. Wow. What did we do? Did we go shoot pool or he something? Was, he was whining that he didn't get it. Ah. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to mention John Wood during our discussion because, anyway, we'll get we'll we'll get to that. Um, Go ahead, we'll, sorry, we'll, we'll be talking about the TV adaptations in a little while, especially uh, Walter presents Just One Look. But first, I want to talk to you a bit about how you got to where you are now, your journey, your struggle, Harlan. Um, as you say, we've known each other a long time, and we've both been doing this nonsense for a while. And you always get asked, you know, what's the secret? How do you keep going? What makes you keep doing it? So there you go. I'm not letting you off the hook. How do you keep doing it? Uh, well, keep doing it. I, th- I think part of it, as you said, the struggle. You know, my first New York Times bestseller, London Times, whatever bestseller, was Tell No One. That was my 10th book. Right. That wasn't my first book. That was my, that was my second book. It was my 10th book. Yeah. Um, so not that I'm, you know, not woe is me struggle, but I had a really great appreciation when the good things started to happen. And, um, I like them to continue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, do you know what, what is, what is sad is, what is sad though, is that that story, somebody that's written nine novels that haven't broken through and then breaks through with the 10th would not happen in the publishing world today. Certainly not in this country. You wouldn't get nine books. It's hard to say yes, yes and no. I mean, when I started, 
I, one of the early things, when I started the Myron Bolitar series, I was a paperback original. Um, they printed 15,000 paperback, mass market paperback originals. I had an advance of $5,000. And not to brag, but by the fourth book in the series, I was up to $6,000. <laughs> so it wasn't over. But the, but the thing is, you know, here's the thing, Mark. We didn't know anything back then. When you first started to come, you knew a little bit more than we did. But So I had no idea that I was a pimple on the ass of publishing. I thought I was kind of hot shit, you know? I mean, I had a book published, but sometimes in a store. I didn't have an Amazon ranking that said $3 million on it. I didn't know any of that. So I just kept going along, you know? I knew I wasn't doing great, but I wasn't that discouraged either. And I think today, and you get the same thing. You get emails from people saying, you know, I published two books, sort of self-published two books. How come I'm not selling like you and Grisham? Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun, it's an interesting world. The, the other question you get asked a lot, of course, is where you get your ideas from, where you get new ideas from. I have a specialist ideas website and a team of poorly paid children, but how do you, how do, you do it, Harlan? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's the only thing, this is the only thing I do. It's the only thing I do okay. So all day long, I kind of have a part of my brain that's asking what if. And so when I see something, you know, the stranger's coming out of Netflix. So one day I was online and I saw an article about a woman who faked her pregnancy. And so I did a little digging and she faked her pregnancy by going to a website called, uh, I don't remember what it was really called. I fictionalized the title, fakeapregnancy.com. And she went there and you could buy, I looked at it and you could buy bellies, you could buy sonograms, you can buy fake tests that when you when you pee on it will come out positive no matter what and i'm like holy crap what if what <laughs> if i was hanging one day at, at my kid's soccer practice and somebody came up and told me my wife had done that hmm, that's the start of a book right so it's basically i'm making it obviously sound easier but it's all these always asking what if about everyday normal events that normally are what lead me to to that first opening hook is that website not really knocked up dot com still still live? There's actually two of them. I did, <laughs> so I did some research. When we when you watch The Stranger, um, you'll actually see we have a website up there and have seen when Richard Armitage looks through it, and it's pretty much exactly what that website is. We did we did, you know we changed it. We had to fictionalize it for ourselves, but nothing is different than what the actual website is. I found two of them. One kind of pretends it's serious, where it's saying. Maybe you're having a surrogacy birth and you don't want anybody to know. And the other one is like, you know, uh, fool your friends, prank your pals, <laughs> go to a costume party. So, the, you know, but both are sort of saying the same thing and it can have nefarious. Our job, Mark, as you know, is to make it find a nefarious reason for that. But how good are these pals going to be? How close to these pals can you possibly be if they suddenly see you at a party eight months pregnant? And go, wow, I had no idea. You're obviously not close <laughs> with these people, right? Well, that's, <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. When you look online, they have, like, I mean, it's so clear what it's doing because they have ones that, like, here's for a belly one to three months, here's a belly three to six months. Oh, like, you okay. buy four, three or four different bellies and things like that. And then I start thinking about, like, what other stuff going on in the internet can I play around with that that we all think we are completely anonymous? But of course, somebody is making that order at pregnancy, whatever, fake a pregnancy, mm -hmm. right? There's a human being somewhere along the line that knows what you're doing. And so once that happens, we have a habit of thinking what we're doing online is secret, 
And of course it's not. This is just one example. Right. But I do this all of the time. I mean, I, I'll give one more quick example. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Promise Me. And the idea for Promise Me came when I overheard two teenagers who I loved dearly talking about drinking and driving. I mean, we've all heard. And I, and I pulled them aside and they said, Promise Me, title of the book, you won't do that. Here's my phone number. Call me at 3 in the morning. I don't care what you're on. I won't tell your parents. I'll pick you up, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you've done something similar, a lot of people. And in real life, nothing else ever happened. But what if? What if somebody called my hero, in this case, Myron Bolotar, yeah. a young girl? He goes to New York City at 3 in the morning. He picks her up. He drops her up at what he thinks is a friend's house. The next day, she's gone. That's how I come up with ideas. There you go. As uh, best as I can tell. So just going back back to the beginning when you you know you weren't this runaway success straight off the bat were you was 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 that frustrating did you have expectations were you kind of you know why isn't this happening um not well not really for two not really I'm not saying it's because I'm such a great patient guy but one is as I mentioned before I thought I was doing okay you know I'm having books published uh, that was the dream right what's your first dream mark well, your first dream is not to make a lot of money or to your first dream is just to one day see your book in a bookshop. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So that was all, and then it was. Then it was you know, my my expectations have always moved up slowly. So it's like, gee, wouldn't it be great if I could do it again? Gee, wouldn't it be great if I could scratch out some kind of living making it? Gee, wouldn't it be great if one day I could skim a bestseller list? So it goes on like that, and I was having enough good things happening and at your nomination or whatever else. And I'm a person who celebrates the victories. So I was always fairly encouraged and had confidence in myself that it would happen. But I wasn't that, I wasn't like disappointed. I had a, I, I was, I was a published author and that was kind of magical in its own right. Now that's not so magical, right? But being published by Dell, which was a major house, even if it was a small time, um, was felt like a really big accomplishment. And I was really proud and pleased to to be getting the five thousand dollars. I I had a, a, an odd experience recently in that I I now narrate all my own audiobooks, but I didn't initially. So I've now had to go back and do the audio versions of books I wrote twenty years ago. Right. Now that that's a chastening <laughs> experience to to reread. Have do you ever go back? Do you ever look at those old books? And what well, do you I, think? I, I what what do you think you'd too. think? I'd be the same sensation I had, but like. Halfway through, during you were just stopping. Up, wow, that's really bad. Can I change that? Yeah, <laughs> no, still... you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. Um, well, no, I never reread my own books except now with the adaptations. I have to, and sometimes I'm pleased, and sometimes I'm not. And I know I've been accused of, of over twisting, which is a fair assessment that I have too many twists in my books. And even I, as I'm sometimes reading some of the old ones, I just had to read The Innocent, which we're making in Netflix Spain, and I was like. Where the hell am I going with this? <laughs> so but do you, do you the criticism feel, that made by Overtwist is fair, maybe. Do you feel like you're a, a much different writer now than you were then? Uh, different, probably. Uh, much different, no. Um, you know, I don't know if you agree with this or not. It's very hard. I mean, it'll be. I think I'm slightly better. Other people will say I'm not, which is fair. Um, but I do think we learn as we go along. I'm not sure I have the energy. I really look at some of the early books when I had, you know, 30 something viewpoints and all of that. I don't know. I just think, you know, you learn something, but you probably are, are you know, you, you have to, in a sense, repeat also. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. It's, I'm definitely different. I don't know if I'm better or worse. Um, some books probably better, some books probably worse.
That was a crappy answer, but that's as good as I can give you. That's a that was a fine answer. So that fir- that first uh, that first book, Play Dead, right, nineteen ninety. Then <laughs> then two thousand and one rolls around, and tell no one happens. New York Times bestseller list, uh, adapted into a, a movie. Uh, wh- what is it about that book that you think made that difference? I, you mentioned John Wood earlier on, and I, I and I knew John back then, um, and I remember a phone conversation where he just acquired Tell No One or just, and he was just giving me the hook over the phone, yeah. and I just went, that's going to work. Was it, was, <laughs> it, was, it, was it that? Do you think it was just that? Here's this pitch that is irresistible? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's part of it. Part of it was that I had written seven straight Myron Bolotar novels before that, and no matter what you do or say, um, there was an audience who just were going to assume those were sports books, and they would not read them. The sports books are not going to read them. So part of it was that I had left that sports world. Part of it was it was something new and different. I think the hook, you know, that hook, and the movie poster had the hook. It was like it was eight years ago. Beck's wife was murdered. Today he got an email from her. Big. That was the end of that. That was the that was the the the, the French movie poster. So um, it was a lot of things. It was a way. I had, you know, a lot of goodwill and, and done okay, but it was a chance also to remake yourself. It's one of the reasons I, you have to leave a series. It's hard to break out with the eighth Myron Bolotar novel. Right. So I think that, you know, there's an, that book, that book, and you just get lucky too. A lot of it is just sort of luck and, and it catches on and it really, uh, you know, it was life-changing overnight. Uh, we should we should uh, mention for the benefit of our readers exactly who John Wood is. We're throwing his name around with yes. gay abandon and rough familiarity. Uh, he was your editor at the time, yes. right? John was the John. I was the first buy John ever had as an editor with, with the Myron Bolotar series, uh, One False Movie, bought in nineteen ninety seven or eight or something like that. Uh, when he first came to the office, and then uh, when he moved publishers, uh, he took Tell No One with him. And we were together a very, very long time. And now, of course, he's become an agent. Yes, and now he's an agent. Yeah, poacher turned gamekeeper, or is it the other <laughs> way around? Um, so you're, you're writing standalones, pretty much, pretty much one a year. Every now and then, going back to Myron. Was the last last Myron Bolotar novel 2016? I think um, uh, it might have been 2017 okay. or 18. I don't remember. Okay, and even though even though they are standalones, there seem to be some themes that that recur. Disappearance. You do love a disappearance, Harlan. Yes, People who aren't quite what they seem, especially within a family unit. What is it about those themes in particular? that you find so compelling? I like disappearances because, you know, the same way that Agatha Christie would have written about murders or Philip Roth wrote about the Jewish experience, uh, I like disappearances um, because it adds another layer. If somebody's dead, they're dead. Um, we can't really, you know, you can solve the crime, you can have justice and all that sort of a thing. But if somebody's missing, you have the chance of being made completely whole. Somebody's dead, they're never coming back. So when someone's missing, you know, you have hope, and hope is a fun thing to write about because hope can make your heart sore, it can crush it like an eggshell. And so I think that's the thing. It adds another layer for me. It, it ups the stakes because now, uh, as I said, you know, you can have full redemption. Uh, it, it's a different kind of a stress than a murder is. And so for the most part, um, that's what I like to do is, is doing the disappearances. So I, I asked you if you thought you were a, a different writer now, Uh than, than the writer who wrote Play Dead. Um, and you said quite tellingly, I think, you know, I'd, 
I'd like to think I'm a better writer, or I might not be a better writer. Do you still have that? I mean, and, and I guess the the day you think you know everything is the day you should quit, right? But right. but do you still have that sort of imposter syndrome that so so many writers seem to suffer from? I, I, I don't know. You have come on, Mark. You have imposter syndrome. I know you too well to not know that you. We all have this. Only bad writers think they're good. These uh-huh. days, you know, is a very strange. It's a very strange paradox because on the one hand we think we suck. And on the other hand, we have the hubris to say, please read me for 400 pages and pay me for the pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, and that's a contradiction, but that's a contradiction that we all sort of have. We've we got a break coming up. Before we go to the break, you've got a new novel coming out this year, The Boy from the Woods. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, the, the idea for The Boy from the Woods, again, to give you an idea, I was walking through the woods, uh, which I hate to do. I was hiking with my family, and I saw just a six-year-old boy kind of running around by himself. And I thought to myself, what if right now, we found a six-year-old boy who had always been in the woods, has no memory of any time before the woods, thinks he was always raised there, used to break into houses or lived off the land. And we took him in, and nobody knew who his parents were, anything like that. And now 30 years pass. He's grown up and still doesn't know what happened, how he, how this, what kind of character would he be? And that is the boy from the woods. Uh, We'll be talking more to the brilliant Harlan Coben about his TV work, why on earth the French love him so much, and what's next for him. But now it's time to see what our roving reporter, our man with the spyglass, Paul Hirons, has been up to. Paul, what's the word on the streets? Yes, thank you, Mark. Uh, I am joined now by up-and-coming British crime novelist Fiona Cummins, who's released, well, she's released three books. She's about to release her fourth. Fiona, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to go back to the beginning. You had a career in journalism. Well, not right back to the beginning, obviously, um, but uh, in your writing career because you were a journalist and then you made the jump into writing crime stories uh, and your debut rattle won rave reviews and it was a really scary story of a particularly demented serial killer. Had you always been fascinated with serial killers uh, and is that something that you wanted to explore straight away? I think I've always been fascinated by the darker side of life. I think the shades of grey in all of us. And I was working um, as a journalist on a big, busy national newspaper at the time. Um, and then a couple of things happened. Um, I went on maternity leave um, and with my second child and my um, my sister-in-law, to whom I'm, I'm very close, was diagnosed with a stage four lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer, and it was advanced and it was aggressive. Um, And then a few weeks after that, um, and just after my second child was born, um, my oldest child, who was not yet two at the time, was diagnosed with a potentially life-threatening condition. And both of those things kind of pulled me up short and made me think about where I was going and what I wanted from life. And what I'd always thought about doing was trying my hand at, at writing a novel, so that's what I did. I um, I just probably driven more by emotion than sense at the time. I, I resigned from my job um, and I thought that I would have a go at writing a novel. Um, and so my first, so Rattle My Debut, um, when it first went out to publishers, it was more of a combination of horror um, and crime rather than kind of more pure crime, I think. And and I was um, I was asked to make it more of a crime novel. And so with that in mind, I focused much more um, on the identity of of my killer, of my my villain, as it were. 
Um, and I mentioned earlier about the sort of shades of grey. I am really interested in in serial killers and the psychology behind why they do what they do. Um, but perhaps even more than that, um, it's this idea that you can be doing very brutal, very dark things, um, and yet you can still love some someone or you can still do a, a kind act. You can still care about something. Um, and I was fascinated by this. I didn't want to write a caricature. I wanted to write a character who was who was 3D, not 2D. Right, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you see a lot of uh, serial killers uh, or read about them in books and see them on TV and the, on the movie screen. And they are a bit cartoonish, aren't they? I mean... Uh, I would even argue that Hannibal Lecter, perhaps the greatest of them all, is has got that kind of almost cartoon villain about him. Certainly in the Anthony Hopkins uh, adaptation, um, so that was important to you to make a serial killer a fully rounded human being with some believable characteristics and motivations. Well, absolutely, because how many times have you heard, you know, somebody when they're interviewed in the press after discovering that their next door neighbour has, you know, butchered multiple people or has been, you know, I don't know, on a, on a murdering rampage. And they said, oh, you know, he was a quiet, friendly fellow or he kept himself to himself, that kind of thing. And I'm I'm always sort of fascinated by that in my work as a, as a journalist. I kind of covered many news stories in which people were never that suspicious mm. about you know, people who were committing these kind of brutal acts and found that really that idea really fascinating. Um, and also I do have my kind of agent to thank in some respects because, you know, when I was writing early drafts, she would scribble over them, yes, but why? And that was her question all the time. And it's a question I try and think about now with every book that I write, which is the why. You know, why somebody kills, you know, somebody kills, they don't just kill for the hell of it, mm. I suppose there is a very tiny percentage of people that might do that, but there is always a reason. And again, it's this whole debate about the nature nurture, you know, because actually, you know, in some of the research um, that's been done, lots of people that go on to kill, that go on to commit um, these kind of brutal acts have grown up in extremely difficult circumstances, have been exposed to all kinds of violence or, you know, sexual abuse or seen things that they shouldn't have to see. And I and I think this influences how people be- behave. And there's some really fascinating new research um, coming out about also how people that go on to become serial killers have sometimes sustained a head injury um, in their kind of early years. And mm. this has gone on to change the way that their brain works. Mm. And it is, I mean, it is a constantly fascinating subject, especially the nature versus nurture argument. And um, and as I say, you, you know, your serial killer certainly has sort of intriguing elements to, uh, well, his or her personality. Let's not give the game away too much. Um, um, you wrote a follow-up called The Collector, where this serial killer popped up again. I think every 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 serial killer in fiction has to have a thing, uh, a modus operandi. And, and as I say, you're, this serial killer that you've written is particularly, you know, horrible. <laughs> Not that your usual serial killers aren't horrible, but you know what I mean. This one's particularly demented. Uh, just could you tell us uh, what what uh, what that serial killer's mo was? Well, it fills my black heart with joy <laughs> that you think um, that it's a particularly demented modus operandi because I was trying to think of something that would make my serial killer unique, that would make um, him a little different um, because I think actually those are the most memorable characters and often, you know, readers, they don't necessarily remember plot, but they 
remember a character who's made an impression on them. And um, he is, he was a collector, a collector of, um, I don't know, specimens who have some some extreme, well, kind of some very extreme specimens. Um, generally, they have suffered from some kind of bone deformity and he collects them for his family's museum. Um, and then when he's collected one of his specimens, he also has a calling card that he leaves, um, which is um, the skeleton of a rabbit because he keeps rabbits at home um, and he uses beetles, live beetles, to clean the flesh of his museum specimens, as the museums actually do. I mean, and they don't do it now, but when I was writing this, um, the Natural History Museum used exactly the same species of beetle um, that I used to clean my museum specimens. Wow. Um, and I went down there and spoke to their um, um, forensic and advisory identification service, who were absolutely brilliant. And I said to them, I went to imagine I'm a police officer um, and I turn up at your your door with this kind of rabbit skeleton and I say that this has been found at my crime scene can you talk me through everything that you can about it and that's exactly what they did and a lot of that conversation is kind of recorded verbatim in in the collector um yeah so I I just I wanted to um create something dark um and something that hadn't really been done before that was I was trying to do anyway I'm not going to have my lunch for a while now after you speaking about that. Um, but I wanted to talk about real quick about your the latest two books, uh, The Neighbour and the forthcoming, I believe, when I was 10. You seem to have broadened out the themes there. The, 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 the Neighbour has sort of elements of domestic noir in. And when I was 10, I mean, there's a, there's a very strong familial element here, isn't there? The unit of the family, the kids getting involved in the cases, the... Uh, the, this kind of whole idea of the perfect lifestyle be coming under threat. Uh, is that something that kind of you just naturally gravitated towards being a uh, a wife and a mother? I don't, I don't think um, it's so much that as I am interested about kind of the dark theme that runs through ordinary life, everybody's ordinary life, I suppose. And I guess having children particularly um, kind of, has influenced um, the path that my writing has taken, I suppose. And, you know, relationships, marriage, those kind of things, you know, because they are at the forefront of my mind and they occupy, I suppose, a lot of my my thought process. Um, But I am interested, I suppose, in, as I said, the sort of dark heart um, Mm. at the centre of family life. Because, and and I like the idea of having a detective having a crime um, and, you know, having it from the kind of killer's point of view as well. I'm fascinated by that kind of three-tiered strand almost, as it were. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I suppose, you know, certainly with a neighbour, that's much more um, a domestic setting. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because it just appealed to me. I guess I was worried in some ways about my writing being too dark um, and alienating certain readers I didn't want that to happen I guess I wanted to broaden it out a little bit too Um, but you'd find in you know all of the books and my new book too that there is again it's this kind of shade of grey it's about having characters who you know are more than who you think they are and I think that's kind of something that's always always interested me and and always will Um, but I did yeah I wanted to play with the domestic setting because actually I think in some ways that's the most frightening thing of all isn't it yeah, you know that the the, the the danger is coming from within the home rather than outside it. 
Um, yeah, and, and we all live on, you know, we all live in homes and streets and have relationships, children, family, all of those things. It's it's universal. Absolutely. Uh, when can we look forward to uh, when I was 10? So at the moment, um, when I was 10 is scheduled for release in, in August. Um, but obviously with the ongoing uh, pandemic that we're all experiencing and the kind of troubled times, we're living through um, that could well be subject to change. So um, it's just a question of waiting and seeing at the moment. I'm not sure a decision has been made on that yet, um, but potentially it could be moved. Um, but yeah, and and that's kind of my, I suppose, my, my latest book. Um, and again, was inspired in some ways by, um, you know, another killer, but this time um, by Mary Bell, who um, is some some of your listeners I'm sure will be familiar with her story um, in which she was responsible for the murder of two young children when she was when she was ten um, and the trial I think was when she was eleven um, and this kind of age of you know I wanted to explore um, particularly this idea of are we are we all entitled to a second chance you know is should if you've if you've served your time, should there be a sense of redemption? Um, yeah, and I I'm, I'm particularly proud of this book. Um, I can tell you um, a little bit about it if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so it so it tells the story of um, uh, Dr. Richard Carter and his wife Pamela. Um, and 21 years ago, they were stabbed 14 times um, with a pair of scissors by one of their daughters in what's become the most infamous double murder of the modern age. Um, and then their, their daughter, 10-year-old um, Sarah Carter, um, spent eight years in a children's secure unit for the brutal killings and is living quietly under an assumed name with a family of her own. Mm. And then to mark the anniversary of the trial, a documentary team um, tracks down her older sister, um, and they compel her to break two decades of silence. Um, but it features um, a journalist who I absolutely loved writing. It's got a member of parliament in it. Um, and it follows what happens um, when a major news story breaks. And obviously drawing on a lot of my experience as a journalist from that um, and how what happens in the press can fuel um, events um, outside of the press as well. So, yeah, I really enjoyed writing it. Great stuff, Fiona. So uh, when I was 10 could be out in august um uh, but keep an eye out for yeah who knows it's such a crazy time at the moment but once again uh, fiona will is uh, exploring as she says the dark heart of uh, human behavior um so do look out for it and with that it's a big thank you to fiona and it's back to you in the studio mark thanks paul we're back with international best-selling author Harlan Coben, who we're chatting to thanks to the wonders of modern technology. Um, Harlan, let's talk a bit about the TV work. Uh, Just One Look is out now to watch on Walter Presents in the UK, as is No Second Chance, which is also available on Walter Presents US outlets. You've written stuff for Netflix. Did you always want to get into TV? Um, no, I actually had no interest in getting into TV. I mean, I had option things the same way that we all had and just sort of dismissed it. Um, I don't think it interests me to, you know, in America, most of the TV series back in the old days were 22 episodes long where you had to solve the entire crime in 44 minutes. Um, and that really had very little appeal to me. And I've been warned very early on by a very smart editor that too many novelists had get, gotten lost by going out to Hollywood and lost their way. And if it could destroy, destroy guys like Faulkner and Chandler and, yeah. and Hammett, 
it would crush me like a little bug. So I actually stayed away for a very long time. I optioned things that never happened, and some did, but uh, for the most part, I completely stayed out of that until a few years ago. But it it has now happened, and and you yeah. do you do seem to be quite involved. Yeah, the, well, the difference is that first of all, I think with the streaming services now, we can do it in a different way. So, you know, the Stranger will be eight episodes long, almost an hour each episode. I can expand my world. I have a lot of control. I don't get a lot of network notes. Netflix has been a joy sort of to work with, and especially the ones in the UK where I'm working with uh, Red Productions and Nicholas Schindler as my partner. This is the third series we've done together. We did Safe in the Five. And for those who don't know, don't recognize Nicholas' name, but you know her shows, Happy Valley, Last Tang on Halifax, Years and Years, um, Queer as Folk, I can go on and on. Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, Scott and Bailey, all those shows Nicholas Schindler was the producer on. So she's a great partner to work with, and I've really kind of enjoyed it. I've met many, known many writers who've had their stuff adapted for TV or have written for TV, and they, certainly if it's a book adaptation, they yep. feel the best thing to do is kind of not get involved because that way, if it turns out to be terrible, they can say nothing to do with me. And if it wins a hatful of Emmys, they just go, hey, that's my book, you know, kind of a win-win <laughs> a win, win situation. But you're, you're not doing that. I mean, you have had stuff adapted. Obviously, we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is something that you're creating specifically for television well both I, I i aren't too much of a control freak anymore to do that and the other thing is as i was saying before so i've written i think i think boy from the woods is my 32nd novel that's a lot of time alone in a room yeah and while i'm naturally an introvert a socially adept introvert i think we call ourselves mm. um so i'm happy alone in a room it's been nice to kind of get out and to work with other people you know danny brocklehurst is my main writer and Richard Fee and Nicholas Schindler and then these actors, in this case, Jennifer Saunders and Richard Armitage and Siobhan Finneran and Hannah John Kamen and Paul Kay. I got to work with Stephen Ray. I got, you know, I got to work with Anthony Head in this show. And so it's a, you know, it's been fun. And then after I'm on set for two or three days, I start to lose my mind and I want to get back alone in a room. Yeah. So weirdly enough, they seem to work to increase my productivity rather than, than taking away from it. Oh, that's interesting. So, that's I mean, I know uh, those are great people to work with. I know da- uh, Danny. Danny adapted uh, two of my books to the BBC. He's so such a fantastic writer and a, and a thoroughly nice guy who we've had on this show, in fact. Um, yeah. But from being alone in the room where you are God and your characters are doing exactly what you tell them to do and nobody else is interfering, th- this is a, a, you know, it's a cooperative production. It's, uh, you know, other people have input. They have, do you, do you still find that tricky on a day-to-day basis? Not, I found it less tricky. First of all, I, I, I work very hard in finding people to work with that, that, I, that I like and respect. And I try not to be that way. It's more to me now since, like, you know, when you're a novelist, you, you are birthing the, the, the kid and the kid's at home with you. But at some point, the kid has to go to school, even though you're not sure they're ready. And you're at the door and you're watching the kid get on the school bus and you're panicking about it because other people are going to be with your kid now. But your kid's going to be okay. And so far... That's how it's been. And I don't like not having the pressure on me. So you're going to watch The Stranger on Netflix. If you if you don't like it, blame it. I mean, uh, I changed. I like to change things from, from the books, too. That's another thing. I think it's a little different. But I like that pressure. And I, and I like to I, – I don't, I don't really want to like just have my kid go to the school and never come home from school. I want to watch the kid. Maybe I'm peeking through the windows at the school. Maybe I'm waiting on the, on the playground of the school. But the kid's not home with me all the time. 
Right. That's a really stretch of analogy there, but just go with it. I, I, I've gone with it. I've got. So, what's next, TV wise? Any any ambitions to direct, to star? No, I don't want to. I don't think direct, but I don't know enough about the camera. We have a The Woods is coming out next, and it's we just finished filming it. It's Netflix Poland. Wow. Um, and it's a beautiful adaptation, completely different than The Stranger. It's 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 moody and atmospheric and very Polish, and I, and I kind of love that hybrid. Um, that'll be out sometime this year. And the third that'll be out this year is The Innocent um, is being filmed for Netflix Spain. And it stars Mario Casas, who's a huge star, and a great director is doing it, Oriol Paolo. If, by the way, if you haven't seen on, on Netflix, has his movie Invisible Guest, which stars Mario Casas. It's one of the best thriller movies I've seen over the last 10 years. Yes, you have to put up with subtitles, but let's all grow up. As well, uh, you know, we learned from Parasite, it's time we all we all started to, to get into that. So if you have Netflix, I highly recommend a Spanish film called The Invisible Guest, directed by Oriol Paolo, starring Mario Casas, who are right now filming The Innocent as we speak. Well, you're, you're clearly conquering Europe country by country, but it, but it, it seemed to have all started in France. Um, yeah. you know, Just One Look is an adaptation of the, the 2004 novel, now a French series. Oh. What, what, what's the deal with France? They just seem to, uh, you know, France M. Le Arlen Coburn. Why, <laughs> why, 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 why are you such a big deal over there? Are you French? That accent. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing, wasn't it? It was like I was in Paris G-Shop. <laughs> um, I'm even doing the shrugging. I'm shrugging as you... I have that French shrug down pat. No, but seriously... Yeah, like the, I go there, I, the first thing I do is I buy a beret with my name stenciled on it. Right. So that way they know I'm a local. Right, right. Um, but, I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, I sold a lot of books in France and had a lot of fun and success. Maybe they're smarter. No, but I'm, I don't know, but I really... I'm thrilled with what's gone on in France um, it's been, you know, I'm the Jerry Lewis of crime fiction, I guess, being in France for some reason. Uh-huh. Uh, I, 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 it was already doing well, and then I think the movie Tell No One that Guillaume Canet directed uh, really kind of put it over the edge. Then we made the movie, the TV show No Second Chance with Alexandre Lamy, as he mentions on Walter Presents. Now Walter Presents is doing Just One Look with um, Virginie Ludayon, who, if you watched, you may know Virginie Ludayon. Some of you maybe remember the movie The Beach with... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Sure. She was the lead, the lead woman in that. Okay. Um, wonderful French actress. I, I don't know, I, I, but I really love my relationship with France, and the, and you know, it's fun to do well in France because they have a great deal of respect for the author, um, and, and that's so. You know, it's really been. Uh, I, I, I'm just lucky. I, I, an incredible experience well i, I think no I, words I'm say I'm lucky. in my experience they've always had a great deal more respect for the genre generally than yeah. than you get in a lot of other countries and i think that uh, that probably applies to both our home countries when you when you go over to to france there you don't get any of that snobbery about mystery fiction or genre fiction that you can get here and sometimes in the u.s um i've been out there with other with uh you know i, I was out there doing some events a few years ago with george pelicanos a long, long time and you know it, it was like it was like being with a god, you know. Yeah. They they really do. There's none of that kind of oh, you write mystery novels or you write crime fiction. It's you know le noir or le roman noir, and they take it they take it very seriously. Yeah, I think there's a lot of countries. I find uh, Poland's the same way. I find Poland has a great deal of respect. Germany too. Uh, yeah, it's just um, they have a great deal of respect for story and and uh, and and the writer. The writer is the most important thing to them. They're not quite as starstruck perhaps as some other. But who knows? I mean, uh, again, 
I never know why does it why and you're probably the same thing, Mark. You're, you're you know your books are in dozens of countries. Why does it do well in Italy and not in Spain? I can never really quite figure that those things out. But a lot of it has to do, of course, with luck. I mean, there is luck involved too. Oh yeah, yeah. so much luck. If you if if any writer, I'm I'm not sure what you say when newest writers ask you, you know, how to how to make a living out of writing, how to get published. You just go work hard and be lucky. I think they're pretty yeah. much the only two things that that you can advise, aren't they? In all to, in other deference, it's true of pretty much everything in life. Yeah, um, you know, everyone. The person who will just tell you it's because of their sheer hard work, um, and they did it all by themselves, is a liar. Yeah, they just are. And whenever you, I've met billionaires and a millionaire, and, and whenever I really talk to them for a moment, there's always that moment, or more than one moment, of luck, complete and utter luck, and that could have gone the other way. That's life. So you know, you move on. Well, listen, thanks so much for talking to us, Harlan. But just before we let you go, we are, we're going to put you on the spot now. We always ask uh, guests on the show for a quick recommendation on something to read, something to watch. So is there a, uh, a crime novel you, you'd like to recommend to our listeners or and something you've watched on TV recently? Yeah, uh, there's a, I just read a, um, uh, her advanced copy of her next book, but I think she has one already out, um, Janelle Brown, one really to watch. So... I'm not sure. I think I think one's called Watch Me. I, I'm terrible with titles, but Janelle Brown. Okay. Um, her new one's called I think Pretty Things, but that's not out yet. Wonderful writer. I think that she's going to be a name we're going to we're going to hear a lot from. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that. What What about something to watch on TV? Uh, if they can watching, find uh, something that hasn't been written by you, I mean something else. <laughs> I'm watching the end of the effing world right now, which I know is a couple of years oh, old. Oh, that's fantastic. Comedy from. Aren't they great? Yeah. Oh, my God. What, you know, they, they, I met uh, some of the cast members in Cannes a few months ago, and wow, it's a, it's really a fun show, and I'm really enjoying it. And Naomi Aki, who stars in season two, was in The Five, uh, played uh, Gemma in, the, in, in our TV show, The Five, so it's great to see her working her, her comedy chops as well. So that's one I'll recommend. Well, say. thank you very much. Uh, a huge thanks to the mighty Harlan Coben for joining us. And remember, you can watch all the best crime drama every day on Alibi, available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT and Talk Talk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then take a couple of moments out of your busy day to review, rate and subscribe. It takes but a fleeting moment and makes a huge difference to us and the future of the podcast. If you don't, well, we might have to send the boys round. OK, we haven't actually got any boys, but we'll send a strongly worded letter. So let's see how you like them apples. We'll be back with another brand new episode of A Stab in the Dark very soon. Until then, a special thanks to our producers Paul Hirons and Joel Porter. My name's Mark Billingham and thanks for listening.